1: Welcome back to The Lead. You've been listening to presumptive Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden taking questions in Wilmington, Delaware from reporters who are on his traveling press corps. The former VP was asked why people should vote for him and if he was just running as an alternative to Trump as opposed to presenting his own strong vision. Biden says some see him as the antithesis to Trump. He wants to restore democracy both on the world stage and between political parties. I want to bring in CNN's Caitlin Collins, Abby Phillip, Uh, And Dana Bash to talk about what we just saw. Dana, that that message uh, that Joe Biden was trying to convey there at that one point is really what the Biden campaign is about, Mm -hmm. uh, restoring a sense of of normalcy. Mm -hmm. Um, But the truth of the matter is any election involving an incumbent president is truly about the incumbent president.
2: It is. And what the incumbent president, no matter which party uh, he has been in, has tried to do as soon as they could is to define in a negative way, obviously, the person who wants the job. In this case, uh, it is Joe Biden. And what the Trump campaign has not been able to do is just that in a way that is politically beneficial enough for one main reason, which is the coronavirus, because it is totally a referendum on President Trump uh, for lots of reasons. The main reason is the way he has handled or mishandled the leadership during this unprecedented crisis. And so what Joe Biden said there is very true. We all heard him when he announced that he wants to run to restore uh, dignity and leadership and, and all the things he mentioned to the presidency. He was aided in a big way by the president in making that argument because of how the president has handled this. So the way that Joe Biden answered that question is pretty much the only way he he could or should, which is the answer is both. He wants to be the replacement for and the antidote to to Donald Trump, but also somebody who can offer some new ideas, which is at the beginning of the speech, which we played, what he was trying to do.
1: And Caitlin uh, Collins at the White House, it, it does occur to me watching Joe Biden take questions from the press corps That there are some clear risks in how President Trump and his campaign, his campaign team, are approaching and attacking uh, Joe Biden. Uh, They portray him as a doddering fool. Uh, They essentially accuse him of being senile. And look, those of us who have covered Joe Biden know that he's not the Joe Biden that, for instance, I covered 25 years ago. But. He was fine in that press conference and answered questions coherently and intelligently. It seems like it's a real risk for them to set the bar that low for Joe Biden because he's very easily able to hop over it.
3: Yeah. One thing they pointed at lately, though, is that he has not taken a lot of questions from reporters. I believe this was the first in several speeches where he's actually taken questions but that is the risk and that's something that some of the allies of the campaign have warned about because one thing that they've talked about is what would happen in the debates where it's Donald Trump and Joe Biden one-on-one and the Trump campaign has essentially use this message that he would crush him. And some people worried they're setting the bar a little too high because then if it's not this resounding victory for the president, then they're not going to be able to walk away with what they've been predicting for the last several weeks. I do think one interesting thing that Joe Biden was asked about there, Jake, is this framing from the Trump campaign, basically saying that Joe Biden is going to go easy on crime, that they are going to defund the police. You know, you've seen those ads where it's someone trying to call the police and they don't answer the phone because they say they've been defunded. And Joe Biden pushed back on that character saying that he does believe those who violate the law should be prosecuted. He tried to draw a distinction between those who are rioting and those who are protesting. And I think it's interesting because that doesn't seem to be a message that has gained a lot of traction with voters, because what we've seen from poll after poll is that their number one issue is not crime. It's actually the coronavirus is a big one for a lot of people. The economy Of course. And so I think that is going to be an interesting question of how the Trump campaign tackles that in the months going forward, since we are so close to the election and they've had trouble defining Joe Biden in the way that they did with Hillary Clinton.
1: And and Abby, on that subject, Joe Biden was giving a speech about uh, how the economy he wants to rebuild, were he to be elected, uh, would be one that is more racially just. Uh, People know Joe Biden and they don't necessarily think of him as a bomb, bomb throwing Marxist. What's interesting and also contradictory about the Trump campaign approach to this is they accuse him of being completely soft on crime and completely weak, and he wants the Portland riots to be going on everywhere. And at the same time, they are attacking Joe Biden for authoring the 1994 crime bill, which was very tough and was a very difficult thing for him to try to explain during the Democratic primaries. He was portrayed uh, as too conservative, Uh, Again, there's really no coherent argument here going on. You can attack him for either one, I suppose, but both doesn't really make any sense.
4: Yeah, Jake, I do think that's called throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks. I think that's where the Trump campaign is right now with Joe Biden. They're not exactly sure what's going to work to uh, particularly pull suburban women away from Joe Biden. That is what this is all about. Even the messaging that is about the crime bill is also about uh, trying to signal to a certain kind of uh, suburban voter uh, that Joe Biden is uh, sort of the wrong messenger for kind of a racial unity message. The, the Trump campaign started there, uh, wanting to use that against Biden, but realized during this summer that that was not a message that was uh, really com- — uh, co- uh, it, it was not one that worked well for President Trump. So they've shifted to um, — they've shifted to this tough-on-crime message instead. And so, as a result, I think voters are left wondering which one is it. What you're seeing Biden doing in this speech is trying to deal with his biggest weakness in this race, which is the economy. Uh, The polls do show that President Trump uh, does poll better than Joe Biden largely on this issue of the economy. At this stage in the race, it's virtually the only issue that Trump still has an advantage on uh, over Biden. And so that's so much of what this messaging is about is a dual message, one, about who is going to be the person who can unify the country and also who is going to be the person who can restore the economy. And uh, I do think that the fact that, that race is so embedded in all of this is not just about black voters. Yes, it is about black voters. But it's also about signaling to white voters that uh, that you're a president who's interested in stitching the country back together. That's why you're seeing Biden focusing on this in part. It's also why initially Trump tried to focus on race, but has later abandoned that, because it's just not, uh, it doesn't gel with the rest of his campaign's messaging, which is standing by law enforcement and being tough on crime.
1: Uh, CNN's Jessica Dean was inside the room in Wilmington, Delaware, during that Biden speech. And Jessica, you asked uh, Joe Biden some news. He made some news uh, about his pending vice presidential uh, pick. Tell us what he had to say about a possible timeline and and who your reporting indicates are the frontrunners.
5: Right. Well, Jake, I want we wanted to know if they were going to stick to that timeline. He'd originally said early August. He said that that uh, was, again, what they were looking at. So we should have a VP uh, selection here in the next several weeks. Uh, I wanted to know, too, because of COVID, will they be able to meet in person? Uh, The vice president, the former vice president demurring on that. I asked if they would wear masks and he just said uh, that that they're going to see. He uh, noted that he had not been tested for COVID just yet. Uh, But so a lot to come on the VP front. But Jake, what we do know is that uh, we're getting ever closer to that deadline. And we've seen a number of names floating up there. Uh, Just yesterday, uh, when the Bidens were at the Capitol, the U.S. Capitol, he had kind of an impromptu meeting uh, with one of the people that has been floated, Congresswoman Karen Bass. Uh, But also, of course, Kamala Harris, Susan Rice, uh, a number of names uh, that have been floated out there. But uh, they still got to get through this final process, Jake. And uh, all we know is that it is closing in on getting to the time. When he's going to make that announcement.
1: Okay, well, early August. I mean, that's coming right up. Uh, that's the end of the it's week. Right uh, up, thank you so it? much yeah. to, to Dan. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. D- D- Dana, Caitlin, Abby, and Jessica. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Just moments ago, the Attorney General Bill Barr wrapped up what was often a contentious hearing on Capitol Hill. We'll tell you all about that. That's next.
6: For left hand.
1: Do you swear or affirm? A defiant and direct attorney general just finishing a contentious and largely partisan hearing on Capitol Hill. In his first appearance before the House Judiciary Committee, Bill Barr spent five hours attempting to defend his tenure as the nation's chief law enforcement officer, including the decision to send federal agents to the sites of protests in various cities. And, he said, calls by some on the left to defund the police were, quote, grossly irresponsible. Democrats devoted much of the hearing to accusing Barr of doing President Trump's personal bidding and putting the president's political interests above the nation's, a charge Barr vehemently denied. Barr tried to remain unflappable, but there were moments when that did not work out. Facing questions, for instance, from Democrats Ted Deutch of Florida or Eric Swalwell of California, Barr bristled when asked about his intervention in the case of Trump confidant Roger Stone. Barr struggled when asked whether a president should ever, ever help, ex- ever accept help from a foreign country. He was also put on the defensive when asked why he took action against protesters in Portland, Oregon, but not armed right-wing protesters in Michigan. Republicans, for their part, spent much of their time attacking Democrats, saying that their criticisms of the attorney general's credibility and conduct were more about Barr's harsh words about the Russia investigation. Notably, while Barr did say he does not believe the 2020 election will be rigged, he did give the blunt assessment that Russia is attempting to try again. CNN's Jessica Schneider kicks off our coverage from Capitol Hill.
7: Bill Barr standing his ground.
6: The president has not attempted to interfere in these decisions.
7: In the long-awaited showdown between the attorney general and House Democrats, holding firm that he is not using his position to do the president's bidding.
6: On the contrary, he has told me from the start that he expects me to exercise my independent judgment to make whatever call I think is right, and that is precisely what I've done.
7: Democrats today laid into him.
8: Shame on you, Mr. Barr.
7: Accusing him of politicizing protests around the country by sending in federal agents, inappropriately stepping in to investigate the origins of the Russia probe, and protecting the president's allies like Michael Flynn and Roger Stone. But Barr pushed back.
6: You say I help the president's friends. Cases that are cited, the Stone case and the Flynn case, are both cases where I determined uh, that some intervention was necessary to rectify the rule of law, to make sure people are treated the same. I agree the president's friends don't deserve special breaks, but they also don't deserve to be treated more harshly than other people.
7: Barr also repeatedly defended the presence of federal officers in Portland, Oregon.
6: We're trying to protect federal functions and federal buildings. If the state would come in and and keep peace on the streets in front of the courthouse, we wouldn't need additional people at the courthouse.
7: But the committee chair brushed off Barr's explanations.
8: The president wants footage for his campaign ads, and you appear to be serving it up to him as ordered.
7: Referencing the killing of George Floyd, Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee confronted Barr about police brutality. And she said the DOJ has failed to adequately pursue federal cases against officers accused of police brutality. I don't
6: agree that there's systemic racism in the police
4: department. That's what we need you to join us on, Mr. Attorney General, and to recognize that institutional racism does exist. And until we accept that, we will not finish our job and reach the goals and aspirations of our late iconic John Lewis. Republicans
7: went on the attack, accusing Democrats of targeting the Attorney General because he has ordered a probe into the origins of the Russia investigation and because of the AG's previous assertion, the Trump campaign, was spied on.
0: Spying on a political campaign is a big deal. It sure is. And since that day, since that day, when you had the courage to state the truth, they attack you. They've been attacking you ever since.
7: And the attorney general was repeatedly pressed on the upcoming election. He said he sees no reason to believe that it could be rigged. That's a term that's repeatedly been used by the president. But Bill Barr did say that there is a high risk of widespread voter fraud when it comes to those mail-in ballots. That was echoing a false claim that is also repeatedly made by the president. But, Jake, Bill Barr dodged when he was asked if the president could move the date of the actual election, and he did not answer, directly answer anyway, uh, whether or not he would do if the president refused to leave office if he was defeated in this election. Jake?
1: Yeah, he had a lot of Oddly nuanced answers for fairly direct questions. Jessica Schneider on Capitol Hill, thank you so much. Let's discuss Barr's hearing with former federal prosecutors Laura Coates and Ellie Honig and retired Congressman Mike Rogers, who was the former Republican chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. Thanks one and all for being here. Laura, let me start with you. So the attorney general once again insisted that his actions and the Justice Department's actions have been completely independent of President Trump. Take a listen.
6: I'm supposedly uh, punishing the president's enemies and helping his friends, what enemies have I indicted? Who, who, could you point to one indictment that has been under the department that you feel is, is unmerited, did, that you feel violates the rule of law? One indictment.
1: It's interesting that that's the framing that he presented. Uh, can you name one of the president's enemies who has been indicted? Because of course, there's a whole raft of, of evidence having to do with, how he has treated the president's opposition, opponents, and what he has done for the president's friends that aren't necessarily about one specific indictment.
9: Precisely. And the fact the reason names like Roger Stone and Michael Flynn and Michael Cohen and Paul Manafort, the reason these names are common to everyone in America and across the globe is precisely for the reasons that he is dodging. The reasoning being that these individuals, to some extent, either through sentencing rollbacks or interference by the attorney general, into the sentence recommendations on behalf of career prosecutors has been weighed in on. The thumb has been on those scales. And so, except for the one persona non grata, who apparently goes back and forth between prison, depending upon whether he'll sign away his First Amendment rights, that being Michael Cohen. But what you saw here was a defiant attorney general who would like people to believe that, no, it's not the president I'm acting under his instructions. I have my own independent judgment. Well, sir, that's precisely what people are questioning right now, the nature and the substance of your judgment. Judgment when it comes to things like sentencing, like the dispatching of federal agents and officers to places like Portland and abroad. The idea of what you're saying about Russia Gate, as opposed to what you've said in that very hearing, Jake, was that he believes that they have interfered and will continue to interfere in the elections. And yet he'd like to have this be about some narrative by the Democrats as opposed to his own actions, his own conduct being under a microscope since that 20-page memo in 2018.
1: Uh, Congressman Rogers, take a listen to this exchange between Florida Congressman Ted Deutsch, a Democrat, and the Attorney General over his push to reduce Roger Stone's suggested sentence.
6: Did the judge agreed any? with me congressman no that's not the what judge i'm, I'm with not me. asking you that the judge part. agreed i'm with not me. asking whether i the, know you're not i'm asking, not asking I'm you saying. that and the
0: issue here is the issue here is whether roger stone was treated differently because he was friends with the president the judge agreed with our analysis. can you think of even one i'm not asking about the judge i'm asking about what you did to reduce the sentence of of roger stone uh, yes can I'm, you think mr attorney are, general He threatened the life of a witness, and you view that as a
1: technicality, Mr. Attorney General. Congressman Rogers, what what did you make of that?
8: Well, I mean, obviously, that's uh, an unpleasant case. It is a bit unusual for the Attorney General to weigh in on a case like Roger Stone. Although, being a former FBI agent, I can tell you, I thought the sentence, even though I thought uh, Roger Stone should serve time in jail— A bit much. Now, that being said, it's still a bit unusual for the attorney general to weigh in. And, you know, in a fully uh, where you'd have more than the five minute I have to make my point versus allowing the attorney general to to talk about it, I think that could have been a better exchange learning why the attorney general did what he did. Was there other extenuating circumstances? And as he said, he went with the judge's recommendation, which I found interesting, uh, which is probably a pretty solid legal argument. Uh, but not necessarily the uh, public opinion argument. I think he's gonna lose that all day long on interceding in that particular case.
1: Ali Honig, uh, take a listen to this exchange between Democratic Congressman Eric Swalwell of California about whether the attorney general should investigate President Trump because of the decision to grant Stone clemency.
8: Are you investigating Donald Trump for commuting the prison sentence of his longtime friend and political advisor, Roger Stone? No. Why not? Why should I? You would agree that it's a federal crime to lie under oath. Is that right? Yes. It's a crime for you, it's a crime for me, and it's certainly a crime for the President of the United States. Is that right? Yes. Are you familiar with the December 3rd, 2018 tweet where Donald Trump said Roger Stone had shown guts by not testifying against him?
6: No, I'm not familiar with that.
8: You don't read the President's tweets? No. Well, there's a lot of evidence in the President's tweets, Mr. Attorney General.
1: I think you should start reading them. What'd you make of that, Ali?
10: Jake, as a Justice Department alum, that exchange in much of this hearing was really hard to watch. And I want to make sure people understand there is nothing normal about the way William Barr has done his job as attorney general. I served under four attorneys general, three of them Republican appointed, one Democratic appointee. We've never seen any of them lie to the public, dissemble, bend the law like we just saw in that clip and inject politics into this process. And I know Barr said right up front, everything I do is independent, everything I do is righteous. Fine. But the problem is he has a track record. He's been in office 18 months. The Roger Stone case is not in isolation. He did virtually the same thing on Michael Flynn. He did the president's bidding on Mueller, on Ukraine, on the SDNY. So I don't think you can just take the rhetoric and elevate it above the actual conduct we've seen from this attorney general.
1: Laura, Barr went to great lengths to say that the inappropriate actions by officers must be scrutinized and that he understood why some African-Americans might think that they're mistreated by law enforcement. But he also insisted that in a lot of instances, the data does not reflect that there is systemic racism in law enforcement. What did you make of that whole part?
9: Well, first, I don't think he did go to great lengths to try to prove that point. I think he used the terms that he can understand why there'd be an ambivalence or a distrust. And I think he pointed to the anecdotes of Two black people that apparently he spoke to, Senator Tim Scott, and also an unidentified, um, I think the word was, somebody who was very prominent, a black professional in Washington, D.C., and apparently that was enough to legitimize that there had been this fundamental mistrust and a whole host of instances that are not anecdotes but are part of a systemic issue of racism and racist encounters with police officers. Also, his statistics. I find it very difficult to ever give weight to the Department of Justice's statistics here, Jake, when they do not have trans. Transparency and actual registries that tell me what the excessive force cases have been, both lethal and non lethal, as asked for by members who have looked for um, reform in the justice system. But the numbers he did give us actually show what he is trying to disprove. It actually shows a disproportionate representation of the killing of black men, excluding women, Brianna Taylor, a Tatiana Jefferson, and many others of the long line of people who have been harmed by officers who are women. But talking about these eight deaths of black men compared to 11 deaths of white men, well, Given the population and the proportion of African Americans in this country, don't you find that to be an over-representation? And he doesn't explain what the cause of it is. All he does is instead say and deflect and say, well, look, you've got black-on-black crime, and that's somehow some some way more of a priority. And I, I always take issue with this overused vehicle of what aboutism, Jake, because no other group of people ever has to have an either-or choice. Either you can focus on -on black-on-black crime or killing at the hands of officers. No one gives a choice of curing cancer or curing COVID-19. They don't get these either-ors, but when it comes to the issues facing African-Americans in this country in particular, when it comes to justice-related issues, this either-or fallacy is promoted. And to have it be perpetuated by the person at the helm of the Justice Department, he should go ahead right now and tell the entire Civil Rights Division You can go ahead and leave. Your work is obsolete. There's no systematic racism here in this country. Sir, you have to inform yourself better than this.
1: Mm. We only have about a minute left. Uh, Ellie and and Congressman Rogers, I want to get your just brief takes on how you think uh, the day went for Attorney General Barr and for the House Judiciary Committee. Ellie, let's start with you.
10: Yeah, look, the House Judiciary Committee did their job. They got off to a very slow start. I think the questioning was much more effective from the more junior members. Look, Bill, William Barr, I think, was exposed for being a partisan and being not credible. But as always, he got through it. He'll survive and he'll continue to serve. But it's important that we know.
1: And, and Congressman Rogers, what did you think?
8: Yeah, Jake, you know, as my mother always said, anything that starts out in anger is just not likely to end well. I just thought it was not a productive day. I do think we have real problems in this country to solve. Uh, And this we versus them attitude in things like uh, trouble with uh, racial bias and policing and other things are not going to get solved by finger wagging at each other. Uh, In this contentious hearing. That's what worries me most about what I saw today. I don't think anyone came out a winner. Clearly, the people who are looking for solutions in cities like Chicago and Portland and other places, I don't think that they felt like they had a winner today either. And that's what I hope all of them go back and reevaluate where we're going.
1: All right, Congressman Rogers, Ellie Hunnick, Laura Coates, thanks one and all. Really appreciate your time today. Uh, one note from us uh, about the hearing today. At the beginning of the Attorney General Bar hearing at the House Judiciary Committee, the ranking member of the committee, Republican Congressman Jim Jordan of Ohio, played a video featuring many uh, upsetting images of mayhem and violence from protests and riots across the country. And that was included along with a mashup of members of the media Uh, And others using the term peaceful protests.
11: Peaceful
0: protests. Peaceful
9: protests. Peaceful protests. Peaceful
1: protests. The motive was clearly to show members of the media, including many of my CNN colleagues, calling violent protests peaceful. But Congressman Jordan neglected to give the full context of these comments so my team and i did it for him here for example is the full sentence of what cnn reporter josh campbell said
0: this has been the epicenter where there have been largely peaceful protests during the day at night sometimes turning uh, violent with these confrontations between protesters and police
1: here are the fuller context of the remarks of our correspondent diane gallagher
11: This is something that we have been seeing here on the streets of Atlanta, mostly peaceful protests uh, since the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis. And when it was one of their own, that anger, that frustration, that pain simply exploded. And we saw the result of that overnight and into this morning uh, in those protests. Uh, Again, for the most part, uh, throughout the entire day on Saturday, the protest after Rayshard Book's death were peaceful and as it began to get dark, things began to change.
1: So do you understand what what Congressman Jordan and his team did there? Our reporters, Diane Gallagher and Josh Campbell, as you saw, accurately described the protests as peaceful and then often exploding into something else, including violence at night. But Congressman Jordan, you just quoted the part of what they said that said peaceful protests when that wasn't the full context. That's not what they said. They weren't calling violent protests peaceful. Congressman Jordan, you did a disservice to them. And more importantly, you did a disservice to the American people, and you did a disservice to the truth. Congressman Jordan, you owe them, and anyone else whose comments you completely misrepresented today on Capitol Hill, you owe them an apology. Any person of honor, any person who cares about the truth, would do that. I guess we'll see what you're going to do. Sticking with our politics lead today, the president has been receiving high marks from his supporters at Fox and elsewhere for supposedly staying on message the last few days on the coronavirus pandemic, which as of now has infected, tragically, more than 4.3 million people in the U.S. and killed more than 148,000. The president, of course, undermined all of that overnight. He retweeted a message that falsely claimed Dr. Anthony Fauci, the nation's top infectious disease expert, purposefully misled the American public. In another bizarre retweet, the president pushed a video of a doctor spewing unsubstantiated claims about coronavirus, a doctor who, it should be noted, has a history of bizarre, non-factual claims. Just yesterday, in a video, I noticed This same doctor demanded that Fauci and Chris Cuomo, and indeed every one of us at CNN, turn over our urine to her to prove, according to her, that we're all taking hydroxychloroquine. For the record, we're not. Twitter took action against the messages the president retweeted and restricted the tweets of his son, Donald Trump Jr. Twitter says it did so because the video shared misinformation about the pandemic as CNN's Caitlin Collins now reports.
6: All of the most promising vaccine candidates in
3: President Donald Trump's brief attempt to appear to take the coronavirus pandemic seriously came to an end overnight. During a retweeting spree, the president promoted a series of posts to his 84 million followers that made misleading and inaccurate claims about COVID-19, including a video featuring this woman. Hello, I'm
8: Dr. Stella Emanuel.
3: In the video elevated by Trump, Emanuel identifies herself as a doctor and wrongly claims that people don't need masks to stop the spread of coronavirus. And wrongly asserts that studies showing hydroxychloroquine isn't an effective treatment are, quote, fake science. Hashtag works. Her comments contradict the FDA and the president's own health experts, and the video was removed by Twitter, Facebook and YouTube, but not before millions had already seen it. Twitter added a warning quoting the FDA saying that hydroxychloroquine is not an effective treatment for COVID-19 and the social media giant even penalized Donald Trump Jr. for sharing it by preventing him from tweeting until he deleted his post. According to the Daily Beast, the woman the president and his son promoted has a history of making bizarre claims, including that DNA from space aliens is used in medicine and that scientists want to create a vaccine making people immune from becoming religious. The White House press secretary left questions about the president's tweets to him. Hey guys, you'll be hearing from the president at five. Trump's overnight retweet spree also included two posts calling Dr. Anthony Fauci a fraud and claiming he's misled the public, accusations the doctor pushed back on today.
8: I don't know how to address that. I'm just going to certainly continue doing my job. I have not been misleading the American public under any
0: circumstances.
3: Trump and his aides have insisted he has a good relationship with Fauci, despite the sustained attacks on him.
0: Dr. Anthony Fauci.
3: But Fauci may have been the driving force behind the president's recent announcement, then cancellation, that he would throw out the first pitch at the Yankees game.
6: I think I'm doing that on August 15th at Yankee
5: Stadium.
3: The New York Times reports that Trump was never actually asked to throw out the first pitch that day, and his statement caught his own staff by surprise. One source told The Times that Trump had been annoyed that Dr. Fauci had been invited to throw out the first pitch for the Washington Nationals last week. And Jake, the president is likely going to be asked about all of those retweets and more when he comes out here to the briefing room in just a few moments.
1: All right, Caitlin Collins at the White House for us. Thank you so much to our health lead now in a tragic new record today. Florida reported its, its highest number of coronavirus deaths in just one day. 186 people died. More than 1,000 Americans died from COVID yesterday. Cases are rising in 22 states. And as CNN's Erica Hill reports, only eight states are seeing a decline in new coronavirus infections. Wuhan, China, in the total epidemic had 70,000 cases. We're having one Wuhan a day in the United States. That is just an out-of-control epidemic.
11: In Mississippi, 80% of infections now linked to social gatherings. In New Jersey, outbreaks among lifeguards at the state's beaches. Infections among young people rising in Pennsylvania and Maryland as cases tick up in 22 states and Puerto Rico over the past week. Concern growing for the middle of the country. We can see the
9: virus moving north. And we could see the test positivity rate rising in Virginia. We've been in Indiana, Ohio, Kentucky, Tennessee. Bars and restaurants in Columbus,
11: Ohio must close at 10 p.m. starting tonight. Kentucky's bars shuttered for the next two weeks after consulting with the White House task force.
0: I don't want to be a state where a doctor has to look at 10 young people knowing they have three ventilators and make a decision and possibly who lives and who dies.
11: Tennessee's governor resisting calls from Dr. Burks to do the same.
0: I've said from the very beginning of this pandemic that there's nothing off the table.
11: I've also said we're not going to close the economy back down and we're not going to. Since reopening began on May 4th, Florida's seven-day moving average for new cases has skyrocketed, up more than 1,500 percent. The seven-day average positivity rate, just over 19 percent.
8: We just can't afford yet again another surge. We've got to get back to a very prudent advance from one stage to another.
11: While new cases in Florida over the past week are now holding steady, daily reported deaths hit a new high on Tuesday. People need to have a sense of urgency
0: that this is important. When they hear the governor and they hear the president saying, don't worry, they believe that maybe this is a a green light to do whatever you want.
11: At least 27 states have now paused or rolled back reopening plans. Less than a week into its shortened season, baseball is also facing setbacks the MLB postponing multiple games out of an abundance of caution after several Marlins tested positive, the NFL canceling its preseason games, and more players opting out altogether. And Derek Jeter, the CEO of the Miami Marlins, has just released a statement saying the team is having a difficult time during all of this. They've also stepped up to daily testing as they file isolation and quarantine protocols. Jake.
1: All right, Erica Hill, thank you so much for that coverage. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. I will see you here tomorrow. Thanks for watching. When you work, you work next
0: level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599.